So I was looking through the list of things that, that have gone through. I try to keep a schedule of, of the various books that we've gone through to try to make sure I don't repeat. And uh, it looks like, uh, as far as I can tell, First and Second Corinthians is the last of the New Testament books that uh, either in a Wednesday or Sunday class some, at some point, uh, th- these are the last two of the New Testament um, that I haven't done since I've been here so, or somebody else. Uh, so uh, we're going to, to get in that, and I guess uh, I don't know where we'll go from there. Uh, maybe we'll start over, or I'm sure there's plenty in the Old Testament to do. We've done quite a bit in the, in the Old Testament as well. But First Corinthians, um, and uh, we're going to begin. I'm going to read the text. We're going to back up, though, and, and do some intro. Um, and after we read, uh, is perhaps a, a departure from the way we typically do it, but I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start and then reading uh, through uh, verse 1 through verse 9. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and uh, with Sosthenes our brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now we're going to get into the introduction, but I read this first because I want to... uh, We're going to talk about the theme of this in in a second. Uh, But a lot of times it, it pays it, it, it pays off to, to look at something that he's trying to drive at. Uh, we're going to, to learn some things by, by, you know, things that he's really focusing on. And if you just read this, what is the takeaway? What is the lesson he's trying to drive? Because this is going to set the tone for the book. What does he want them to get from this introduction? Okay, he is trying to drive home the idea of Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now, Paul repeats himself. That's one of the things that that's significant about Paul's writing, but not like this typically. If, if it's like this, he's trying to get a point across, um, and, and so he's a multiple times in this text, five or six times, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and over and over, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's trying to get that point across. So with that, I want to jump into the the information about this church that is going to be... I don't want to just do the, the general type of info. Uh, there is some of that, but I only want to get really into that which affects uh, our... Uh, our text as we go through it. Um, so we can uh, 
this city of Corinth and where it's written to is, is important. Uh, and, and some of the things about it, some of it, not maybe not important, but uh, it goes through phases. Uh, and, and this is important to its development and, and its structure. And its structure is unique and it's going to affect things that Paul has to address. The ancient city uh, had been completely destroyed and depopulated uh, around 140-something years before Christ. Uh, and when I say depopulated, I mean it burnt down to the ground by, uh, by Rome, being a Greek city. And uh, this is in this era where, where Rome is taking over in the world. And, uh, and so it's going to be depopulated and not inhabited at all. It's a ghost town until 44 B.C. Now, you might know what that year is, what is significant about the year. Well, that's the year that Julius Caesar is assassinated. And one of the very, very, very last things that happened uh, before his death was that he reinstated Corinth as a, as a Roman city. Uh, and, and from there on, it, it begins to thrive. Um, so, uh, from there, um, it, it, it goes on and on and continues successfully until an earthquake. Now, uh, the city of Corinth strangely enough it's located it's not located where you and I would put a city there's a wonderful port about three miles uh, down lower uh, but this is located up in a hill um, and why not put your city where where all the the stuff is going on you know in the in the in the in the port I mean that's that's where activity goes goes on right where uh, Merchants and uh, entrepreneurialism, all that stuff is going on there. They're, they're going to go up there higher. And you'll notice if you look at any ancient city, right? All these ancient Ephesus or Colossae or whatever, they're all always this city destroyed by you know earthquake. And why? Uh, so our modern day Corinth uh, is is not where ancient Corinth was, or part of ancient Corinth, because that was destroyed by an earthquake because they always put their temples on fault lines. So they, they looked for some type of uh, mountain or somewhere where they would expect a fault line. They found that and they'd put their, uh, put their temples there. Uh, and so you want to be close to the temple area. Uh, at least the elite people do. So this is going to be built uh, away from the, the port. And of course, eventually what fault lines do is they do what they do and they have earthquakes and, and then the whole place is destroyed and people decide that maybe it's not good to, to build right near a fault line. So uh, so that's kind of a little bit important. Then there's around the 300s, there's a, uh, another, an earthquake and then shortly after that, uh, if you remember Revelation class, we talked about Alaric and the Visigoths who, uh, who sacked Rome. Well, on their way to do that, they also sacked Corinth. 
Uh, they didn't completely annihilate it, like Rome, but uh, they did it enough damage that it's going to start declining. It has a brief resurgence in the 800s with silk trade, and then it kind of just de-evolves from there. Well, its geography we, we've kind of introduced a little bit, and it's going to become important in this distance from the port. Corinth is, is really subdivided into three parts, and geographically. So you have that upper city that we talked about. That's what we would call Corinth proper. That's, and that's really where your elites live. Uh, there is a lower section right, um, where the ports are. There was, it was more your poor villages. It's going to be where your fishermen live and your, uh, more your peasantry uh, because of its proximity to water and various things like that. It's going to be in, in, in your um, flatter surfaces. It's going to be where farms are. So uh, it, it's going to be your lower uh, classes primarily. Your upper classes live in the upper part of Corinth, about three miles away. And, and, and the question is, what in the world would allow this division Three miles, right? That's the distance from this church building to my house. For those of you who've been to my house, that's, you know, that's not, in a vehicle, that's a 10-minute trip, you know, but uh, across town. But in, you know, walking it, I'd never attempt to walk it, you know. that That's crazy. Why would I do that? I used to walk a mile to church in, in Ukraine. But why would I, why, I, I couldn't, you know, walk this distance. Right. So, so what would allow uh, that type of separation? So we have to look at this thing, this, the third part of Corinth, which is called the Acro-Corinth, and that's the mountain, and that's about a half a mile away from upper Corinth. This is the, the temple area. This is the, the cultural uh, part of the, the city. And to, to phrase it this way, uh, it would be, Corinth was, I guess what we would call the Las Vegas of the, of the ancient world, or the first century world. What I mean by that is that they had a unique thing that allowed them to, for the elites, not to have to mingle with the, the poor for, for too much. They had their own separate source of income. And that was a temple. Uh, the temple was their source of income. And uh, they had, their temple was to Aphrodite. Uh, anybody know who Aphrodite is? Right? We know who, Diana had a temple, uh, Ephesians had a, a temple to Diana. Diana is, who, who is she? She's the goddess of what? Very good. She's the goddess of war. Uh, Aphrodite is not that. We know her uh, the Rome, by the Roman name also Venus. When she is the goddess to what? Love? Well, uh, <laughs> not exactly. Not exactly. Uh, right. Uh, so, so to put it bluntly, she is the goddess of sex. And so we should expect at this temple the activities wherein she is connected to. 
and uh, and that's exactly what we find. the uh, The temple had uh, at least it's estimated more than, but at least a thousand prostitutes connected to this temple uh, of of both male and female. Uh, so so there was something for every flavor uh, of uh, of pervert essentially. People came from all over the world to Corinth because, hey, uh, we're going to Las Vegas. So uh, it was said, there was an ancient proverb, that Corinth is not for everyone. Right? And, and the reason for that was because it, it, another thing that was told about it was that they could, Corinth could, quite literally, strip you of your uh, worldly possessions uh, within about 48 hours of you landing there. That this was a professional temple, um, and 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 so well, that's a, a lot like Las Vegas. You get there, you go home broke. So uh, that's why I say it's like Las Vegas, um, and and it just appeals to all of your base desires. And so they had this wealth in Upper, um, so they could pay for whatever they needed to be brought to them. They didn't need to go down and mingle with the city and the lower people. Uh, they could just stay up there and, and have whatever they needed. And uh, so, so that brings us uh, then to the background of the church and various things happening. Uh, Paul established this church. We can, we can tell from the book of Acts in chapter 18. We, there are some details about... Uh, Roman authorities that we can place from history, that this was between around 50 to 52 AD, um, where this church was established by Paul. He spent 18 months with this church, and there are two significant events that happen that are recorded uh, in the Bible anyway. One is the conversion of Priscilla and Aquila, who were exiled from Rome at the time. They were Jewish. And uh, the other is that this uh, this mission trip where Paul was, this was the, the decision uh, or kind of what went into it where he decided that he was not going to focus on the Jewish population. And this is where he says, I'm, I'm, that's it, I'm going to the Gentiles. And, and that, was, that happened in Corinth after, you know, uh, opposition. And he got tired of it. He got fed up, said, that's enough. Uh, and that kind of change in, in his focus of his ministry happened there. As to the letter, uh, we're not going to go and read all these if you wish to. Uh, I'll, you can write them down and go look at them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16.8 tells us uh, or gives us a clue that it is written from Ephesus. Uh, there is another verse that is quite interesting. Uh, that is chapter 5, verse 9, uh, in which he refers to a previous letter that he has written to, which suggests then that what we have is 2 and 3 Corinthians. Now let me add to one something that some people believe, and I don't, but I'll, I'll give the theory here, that actually what we have is 2nd and 4th Corinthians because of a statement made in 2nd Corinthians in which 2nd uh, Corinthians appeals, uh, refers to having written previously a letter of tears or something like that. And, and so some people think that there's some other letter <coughs> written uh, between 1st Corinthians and what we have as 2 Corinthians, that there's another one. I do not believe that. I believe 2 Corinthians 
when he talks about this letter of tears, um, I, I believe he's referring to 1 Corinthians because it is, literally, if you read it, it is a letter of tears. It's a letter of sad things that this church was going to through. It also refers to one of the things that we're going to talk about, which is the reconciliation of a disfellowshipped brother. Uh, and that was uh, a theme of of our letter of 1 Corinthians. So we are going to refer to it as 1 Corinthians, but I believe it is 2 and 3 Corinthians that we have. Um, why that first one didn't make it into uh, our Bible, wasn't preserved, or maybe it was uh, redundant material, and uh, who knows? Uh, maybe it was just a brief little you know, kind of like a Philemon letter that, that was even small. I, I don't know. We have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, so I don't know if size has anything to do with, with whether a letter was considered inspired or not. But somewhere it was lost. So, um, or God did not consider it necessary to preserve it. So I want to talk about the theme. We often look from uh, at, at this letter to Corinthians as... You know, from the perspective of all the problems in the church, and, and we could do that. That would be accurate. There's pretty much not too many chapters in in this book that don't deal with a major major problem in in the church. I don't want to look at it from this perspective, however, because he's going to introduce, and, and we uh, um, in the next section, um, the the idea of of unity. And I think every problem that he mentions can be connected to one concept in that these are the things that influence or negatively impact our unity. Right. So, uh, so I want to get into our text then. I want to ask some questions. Why? He says, I think... My God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. Why does he want to uh, remind them and, and thank God for this? Because he continues, he's like, oh, uh, you're a part of this larger thing. Why remind them that they were called into the fellowship of, of his son and, and, and various things? Or it's not Paul's church, it's Christ's church. That's a good thing to remember. Anything else jump out at you? Remember, keeping their situation in mind. He's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit here in large part. And he's going to get into a larger section of that. A lot of this is just kind of introduction for the entire outline of the book. A lot of times if you're comparing yourself, right, you look at other churches or other people, it's easy to compare yourself to people who are more successful, more whatever, and, and think, oh, I'm not like them. And, and he's reminding them, listen, you were given all these same things. God's grace has is, is been given to you too. You aren't inferior in God's eyes because of these things. What can we guess about this church? They were discouraged. Okay, they're discouraged. What are some of the things that might... Uh, when we look at the makeup of the church, 
what would we naturally expect about some things? We know there's lots of divisions. Okay. Yeah, that's gonna, he's going to jump right into that one. Okay, so there's lots of divisions. There's lots of groups. Can't we guess that some of the people in this congregation probably came from the background of the awful things that happened? They, they didn't float 10 feet above the, the, the earth here and, and, and somehow remain pristine. They, they probably a good portion of them, not all of them, but probably a good portion of them had been involved in some of this stuff. And their families may still be. Mm. You know, extended families. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think he's got trying to repeatedly remind them, listen, that's your past. First of all, here's an encouragement to, to keep going. But, but to re- remember, you've been cleaned from this. God's grace is... Is, is towards you, and, and I thank you every day because it's like there's this there's this church, and you're a part of it. How wonderful this is! You're really concerned that those customs and practices are infiltrating the church. Mm. So. Yeah, it, it can be going back into the church, and I think we're going to see some evidence of that. It's you know I don't know. I assume the location uh, I'm going to guess based on some of the other things that we're we're talking about is is up in this upper part. And that will play into some of the things that we see later. So, again, surrounded, how easy it would be for this to come right back in. And there's motivation. Well, look... He says, he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called in our fellowship of, our son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so what is the there's a motivation here? What is motivation or source of motivation? What should appeal to them? Okay. What's the character of Christ? Faithful. And that means two things. First of all, it's if if Christ is faithful, I should be. That's that's one motivation. But but it's it's not just hey, he's doing it, you do it too. It's it's encouragement. There is a reward. And and one of the things that is, I suppose, if you come out of this, would be things that are no different in our society. It might look different, but the, the guilt that people have, even after being forgiven, people feel guilty. Right? Um, even intellectually knowing, okay, I'm a Christian, and that is still difficult to overcome guilt of things. Talking about constantly you're in his grace and and he's 
bringing you closer to it every day. And, it, and He's faithful. He's going to preserve you to the end, knowing every day you get up, you have that grace. I think is is a significant part of motivation. You're enriched by everything. You've got all these advantages. Right? Stay with it. So we get into the body of this um, it goes from chapter 1 up through chapter the end of chapter 4 about the specific disunity he's going to it's kind of going to he's going to introduce it he's going to go through a couple of topics and he's going to end up almost repeating himself in chapter 4 um, as a kind of a cap on on this text so we're not going to get too far, I don't, I don't know, uh, into this part today. But he begins at verse 10. We'll read this section, but we're not going to... Uh, some of this is a little bit more detailed. If we get there, we get there. But uh, through verse 17, he says, No, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, or else someone would say, oh, I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I baptized also the house of Stephanus, and besides that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, or else the cross of Christ would come to no effect. What are we supposed to be the same in? And we'll talk about what that means. Okay. Mind and purpose. Mind and purpose. One more thing. Okay. Just to speak the same thing. Have the same mind, same judgment or purpose. Right? These are all different ways of saying a lot of the same thing. Do we all have to have the same opinions? We're going to disagree on some things. So what is he saying then? Is he asking for the impossible? I don't think he's asking the impossible. He's asking the extremely difficult. So, so what is he trying to achieve if, if it's, it is impossible for me to have the same opinion as everybody else? What is he asking? Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so, so we begin from the basic premise that, that we have to begin from a common idea of God and Christ and various things like that. There's probably a lot of different ideas floating around even then. Remember that they're, they're in the infancy of the church. They, don't have the, they haven't been raised with the terminology and the, uh, the doctrines and everything. This is all completely new to them. 
gospel. Okay. Which was what Christ brought. Okay. So you, you, you just take that element and forget about all the opinions and thoughts. Just stick to the gospel and be united in that. Okay. The foundational concepts of the doc of of the gospel are going to need to be agreed upon. Right. Now that's where some opinions come into what belongs into that equation, and different people throw a lot more in there than probably should be, and some people don't throw enough probably. And, and there are times where Paul says, "Listen, we can't fellowship with this group of people because they they can't." Get the right mixture, um, and 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 so Paul says, "Listen, we're leaving this group, and we're not going to have anything to do with them." Um, you know, the Judaizers was one of them. Um, I think Paul was going back to who, what, and why. Mm-hmm. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? Yes. Why are we following? Right. Him? Right. That is what Paul's referring to in the right. unity. The, I. I think he's talking because of the time and because of the location, because of everything. I think he's talking a little bit more basic than than we would look at it from a 21st century perspective, where we've got pretty much our liturgy all, and and we have to know this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing. And I, I think he's speaking much more basic. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not things um, that he wouldn't include maybe now <laughs> having that basis. But right then, he's speaking very basically. Aren't they, if a lot of them came out of idolatry, of the, the Greek mm-hmm. gods and all of that, are they maybe kind of trying to equate that together where, where God's the, the main guy and then they got all these mini gods, Paul, Apollos, and all of them, and they're like going through them to get to God? Or get to okay, so, so that maybe they've elevated people. So we're going to get into this, this division where these things come and um, that, that's a, an interesting thought I had because that's happened before, right? Where, where um, Paul and Barnabas were in a crowd and preaching and they're like, wow, the voice of God and not a man. And I go, well, this is so, so incredible. This, we'll call this guy Zeus and we'll call this guy that. <laughs> no, 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 no. And so they attached because to them, a God could come in a human form. The Caesars all claimed to be gods. I mean, they, they just, you know, so they just naturally believed that and assumed that that's possible. Uh, so, so that might be that might be an interesting point. And here's people equating, you know, Christ with these others. So um, that's a really good thought. I had not thought of that. Um, so, so we get into these factions. Then let's do that. Um, what is the attraction to Apollos? Okay. Now, where's Apollos from? He's from Alexandria in, in Egypt. So, so why would someone in Corinth suddenly, you know, why would there be a subset of this church that really feels a strong attraction to him? I don't even know if Apollos had ever been here. Okay. Oh, yeah. He's, he's Greek. He's a Greek background person. Right? And what's, what do you think of when you think of Apollos? Really dynamic, educated. We talked about this education center. 
And there's going to be people in this church from Athens. I mean, it's 50 miles away. There's going to be people who have come here from Athens. There's going to be people that kind of view him as connected to them in some way. Like, ooh, he's like, ooh. So we, that's what we do. Whenever these groups start, we kind of look for people who are connected to me in some way that I can identify. And, and, and this is this cult of personality that, that these are all dominant people. If you look at this list, there's no, none of these people are type B personalities. These are all type A. Right? These are all leaders of men. And we attach ourselves, oh, this teacher, you should have heard this teacher. Have you ever listened to this guy? Do you know this guy? And, and we do that. So, so there's that. Now, maybe some of these are even transplanted Alexandrians that started the whole thing. Oh, we heard him way back. I don't know. Well, what's the attraction to Paul? This seems obvious, but let's... What's the attraction to Paul? He was with them for a year and a half or a half. Okay. All right. There, there's probably people in this church... It doesn't take too long for a turnover to kind of, before there's a, a new populace that doesn't know something. Like, in Nicopo, we've been here for six years, about the same time that Paul would have left. Most of the people in the church there, I don't even know. It, it, there's a lot of turnover. Some people have passed away, some people have moved, and there's like about four, four or five people that I, I remember probably. Or four or five families, I should say. But those ones that were the original... Right? Not that I have a great following there. That's not what I'm trying to say. But, but, but if there's that tendency, oh, we remember Paul. We were there at the beginning. It's really not about Paul. It's about me. I was one of the original. Factions are always out of pride. We're Alexandrians. We're the elite philosopher people. So they're Paul's. I'm an original. I, I'm look at me. I'm, I'm so all of these things are really not about the people. It's it's about the pride, and we use that pride to attach to a dominant figure. What is the attraction to Cephas? And who might be likely? Who is Cephas? Peter. Peter. What group is going to be attracted to Peter? Jews. Jews. Yep. It might be the smaller percentage of people here. And what is the attraction to him as, I mean, Paul's a Jew. Yeah. So, so this, this could be like a, I'm going to one-up your original. Oh, you were here when Paul was here? Good, I'm going back to the real beat. We do it the way it was really original, right? And you can see all this. Just It, it comes to life when we kind of look at kind of how Things happen today. We were here. Oh, oh, you were here. That ah, we go back to this. I'm from Jerusalem. What's that? Okay. So I, I doubt that anybody in this church remembers that. Right. There's probably no one in the late 50s in Corinth who was there when Peter spoke. Probably the majority of these people never even met Peter. I would be surprised if one person in this church met Peter. Peter's not even in this area. Well, with the divisions and the 
it gave who you attached yourself to credibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. In your stance, your opinion, credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree with so and so. Yeah, you use you use that person as kind of a uh, uh, to shore up your opinions. We're Jews, and he was a great Jew, and 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 you can selectively quote those people. If all these people got in a the room, they're like, what? <laughs> like, I don't agree with you. I don't. Uh, probably a lot of them were saying things that these people would never ever endorse. You know, Apollos was not going to interject his Alexandrian mythology studies or whatever into his gospel. But that doesn't mean that someone wasn't going to selectively quote him as doing so. We are of this faction. We believe this. And it always comes down to some difference of opinion. And of course, Christ. Well, I am of Christ. Well, aren't we supposed to be of Christ? So why is he criticizing them? And he is criticizing them. Because the very next statement is, is Christ divided? You're of Christ. You say, I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? So, so he's criticizing this group who's claiming to be of Christ. I'm like, well, we're supposed to be of Christ. So what, what is the nature of this as a criticism? Oh, yeah. This this whole thing is a one-upsmanship. <laughs> oh, you're of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Oh yeah, you're of Paul, I'm Peter. Well, I can go back before Peter. I'm I'm of Christ. And, and the whole thing is being used to support, like like Kim said, to to support the faction. If you were really of Christ, you can claim that all you want then there would be unity. But you're part of the problem, not a part of the solution. <laughs> if, if, um, and this is where I want to leave off with some application here. Christ was not about separating and and emphasizing differences. He was about purity of doctrine and various things like that. And he wasn't afraid. Paul and Pete, none of them were afraid to say, okay, we have to make this distinction. But if I am of Christ, where I see divisions, my goal should be to try to mend those. In other words, the character of Christ should be evident if I'm of Christ the evidence should be there in my behavior so in in seeking this partisan thing they were really showing that they were not of Christ this was just a hollow claim to to try to gain some superiority in this congregation and with their little group Okay. Yeah, it's it's incons- the behavior is inconsistent with the claim. Yeah. Um, and so, as we look at this, when we when we look 
because these types of situations arise today as they, they do, have done through the centuries. Our goal should be, okay, I'm not joining a side, but as a Christian, how, to, how do we mend problems? Well, it goes back to the scriptures at the beginning where it said they have great wisdom and understanding. Mm. Yeah. And Jesus, when he was preaching to all of us at the beginning, said there's two things. One, that you love, <clears throat> one, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mm. with all your mind, with all your soul. Second, is that you love your Brother, yeah. Give grace and mercy. Yeah. To them, we need to have this understanding. Mm-hmm. And you work through them. Yeah. And so the Corinthians were not born into that idea. Sure. Because that's what Paul came preaching right. and teaching was Christ and His life and His baptism and resurrection. Yeah. And he even appeals to something like that. that. That's a good point. He even appeals to something in their nature that they can they can be attracted to, this idea of knowledge. When you look at those things, he talks about the gifts that they had been given. He doesn't refer to the miracles that they could perform. Listen, you guys have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, the ones that talk about how the wisdom and, 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 and the, the gospel. You, you have access to this spirit that, that enlightens you in this way. He, he goes, the, the source is going to be the right information. And when you have that gospel, that purity of gospel, and you can kind of come to one thing, that is going to get rid of all these divisions. It's going to be a lot better. So, anything else before we close? Okay, we're dismissed.